the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome once again for tuning into a brand new episode of Sake On Air, the world's one and only podcast that is 100% dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. The show is brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association here in Japan, and usually broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular hosts here on the show, and I am joined again this week by two of my regular partners in crime, uh, Mr. Sebastian Lemoyne, and slightly angled up to the left from him on my screen, I have Chris Hughes, and we're talking about Nigori, the white cloudy sake. A lot of times you'll see sake that is clearly not 100% transparent. Uh, it looks like there's something floating in it. Um, it's usually white. Um, there's occasionally odd variations, but generally white and cloudy in appearance. Um, and it really is a style uh, all its own. And it is a style that actually has a lot of different style within that style. Um, there's a lot of variation out there. And so we thought it would be worth our time and hopefully everyone's time to talk about Nigori because personally, well, I thought it would be good to talk about it because I think it's an important category or important style, I guess. Um, and also just because I like it and I don't think it gets enough attention. It doesn't get enough public love um and so i thought uh, we should we should shine a little light on it it's true that i sometimes feel that um, nigori has an image program an image problem um especially in japan i would say more than more than overseas it tends to be considered maybe lower grade or lower category mm. there are some statistics that that say that uh nigori is the third most kind of asked after type of sake uh, after what was the first one sparkling I think and then second was uh, I forget what the second one was and then third is Nigori so yeah you're talking about outside of Japan right outside Japan yeah right so that's a that's a another reason I really wanted to kind of shed a little light on this because Sebastian as you said it tends to make up a very 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 small portion of most producers portfolios there's some exceptions mm -hmm. and we'll talk about those a bit today but for the most part, one, it's a very, very small part of the portfolio. Two, when you ask in Japan, a lot of producers to say, present you with something that is that they feel to be representative of their style or, or their brewery um, or something that is very iconic um, in relation to the type of sake they produce, I would say that nine times out of 10, if not more, even if you said bring three sake, um, most producers probably wouldn't include their nigori um, in those. Um, it's not the one that always, you know, given a finite number of choices to represent themselves, a lot of places wouldn't necessarily select it. Again, this isn't, um, it's not a hard and fast rule. There's certainly exceptions, um, but for the most part, you just don't really see it. If you were to I mean, if you were to go out dining at most places that serve sake in Tokyo, if you're just to go out into an izakaya, chances are there's not a nigori sake on the menu. Yeah, in more yeah. more cases, they're not. 
you know, of course, if you go to a sake bar that has, you know, a hundred different um, items on the menu, sure, mm -hmm. you might, they might have six or seven or eight or 10 on there. That's entirely possible, but that's an exception to the rule. You know, mm -hmm. most places, if you go to an izakaya that have, you know, 10 or 15 sake on the list, chances are anigori is not one of them. And if it's a place mm -hmm. that only has a small handful, the likelihood is even higher that that nigori is not going to be one of them, which means that the regular consumer, if you're just going out and you're selecting a sake, nigori mm -hmm. as a choice, as an option for the probably the greater majority of the regular consumers here in Japan just aren't going to encounter uh, mm -hmm. a nigori. Um, yeah. Ni nice thing is nowadays you're starting to see a little bit of shift to interpretations of the style and you're starting to see more representations, which we'll talk about a little more, more down the road. Yeah. Can I, can I say, I think the nigorizaki that you get overseas is a little bit different from the nigorizaki that you get in Japan. I would say it's it's made in a more easy drinking, uh, accessible style. Um, the hardcore nigorizaki here can be pretty, you know, it can be pretty tough to kind of get your head around at first uh, if you're used to drinking the, you know, the clear stuff. Um, when I first actually did, after tasting nigorizaki outside Japan, when I actually came to Japan, I tasted like the real nigorizaki for the first time i have to say i found it very hard to drink you know very super high acidity very rough um very grainy in the mouth the complete opposite to what you perhaps you know used to drinking normally um yeah and i think the, like the first nigorizaki i ever tasted was in london and it was uh takara's um usa nigorizaki it's very easy drinking it's very sweet as well it's nothing like the nigorizaki that you get here in Japan. Yeah. I mean, those are, there's stuff that's available here in Japan, but it's just, there's, there's just, there's yeah. a lot of different stuff. And so it's oh, yeah. to, to even say that, you know, I, of course, just the nature of having, you know, particles and that sort of texture in there, you're, some people might be more put off by it, whereas some people yeah. might be more attracted to it. But even just to categorize Nigori into mm. a single style is, really tough to do nowadays just because every producer's interpretation of that is going to be very different and yes. the so we'll sort of talk about the different styles and sort of the range um but especially nowadays the range of sakes that have a cloudy element to them are just vast it, it's a really exciting style as well because there's really it, it's hard to say you know, unless you have a, you know, a real serious aversion to the idea, you know, of those, of that, you know, that texture, just having that element mm. being a part of the experience um, to say you like or dislike, you know, Nigori across the board, not you specifically, Chris, but just. No, no, uh, you're, making a, you're making a fantastic point, Justin, because it's not until I started to explore the diversity of Nigori Zaki that I realized that what I was turning my nose up to wasn't necessarily Nigorizaki as a style. It was just one brewer's particular uh, interpretation of it. And I have a much bigger appreciation, great appreciation from Nigorizaki now after trying so many different breweries yeah. products. And yeah, I don't yeah. turn my nose, I don't say, look, Nigorizaki, if someone tries to serve it to me, I don't say, no, I don't like Nigorizaki. I'm not going to drink that. I go ahead and taste it because I could be surprised. It could actually be to my liking. Yeah. And I think that your experience is probably similar to a lot of people's. Mine, if, you know, early on as well, and that kind of like what we we're talking about before, if someone has a nigori sake on their menu, in many cases, they probably have only one. 
right? Yeah. So most people's opportunities to try another type of nigori, like a lot of people, they're like, it's kind of, I've already got our nigori. So yeah, um, yeah just checking a box, aren't they? They're just checking a box. Like, you know, yeah. let's check the nigori box. Yeah. Exactly. Sebastian, what about, what about, what about you and your experiences? I, I guess my experience, uh, again, as, as you said, uh, Justin was not dissimilar. I mean, my, probably my first experience was with a um, thick nigori that you can find as a representative of the category. Um, and that's that was overseas. Uh, but today it's actually quite different. I do consume quite a bit of nigori, uh, but we need to, to enter into in, what, in, what it can be because um, I tend to drink a lot of the lighter stuff or the light clouds stuff more than the more than the thicker texture and and, and mouthfeel. So we get in and kind of define what it is we're talking yeah. about here. For those who maybe aren't familiar with the, with the term that we're talking about, when you're looking at what we're saying, we're talking about a bottle of nigori. What you see is a sake where a portions of a portion of the solids or the sediment from the fermentation mash has either been left in mm -hmm. to the final product or after having been separated, it's been reintroduced or added back in. So some of yeah. those, those solids still remain uh, in the bottle. Yeah. Which means it's still then in the glass when you're drinking it. So you've got texture, you've got an element of solids um, that are still in there that are present um, and so that's why a lot of people call it cloudy sake, right? Because you pick it up, you yeah. turn the bottle upside down and right side up and upside down and you have um, waves of cloudiness moving around in there. And yeah. it can range anywhere from, unless you lean real close and shine light on, a light on it, you can hardly tell that you won't, that there's something even floating in there to nearly thick as a, like a thick milkshake. And it can be yeah. anywhere in between. Right, um, and so it's not a defect. If you see a bottle like that, yeah, it's not a defect. That's yeah, a yeah, because that's a good point. That's a good point because you know things floating in the bottle tends to send off alarm bells, uh, set off alarm bells for a lot of people. Right, yeah, nine hundred ninety-nine times out of a th thousand, it's intentional. <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily a defect. You can't judge that alone, the appearance alone. You have to also check the nose and the palate, and then you can decide whether it's a defect or not. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and the reason that that's important is because what sake or nihonshu is in Japan yeah. from a regulatory standpoint, um, they call it seishu, which is interesting yeah. because just the word seishu and it, the actual characters for it imply a clear transparent liquid. Just yeah, the yeah. Name. They use the Chinese character for clear in that, in right. that word. From a regulatory standpoint, nigori um, is falls under the Seishu legal tax category. Um, yeah. And to categorize anything as Seishu or what we would refer to as sake, it has to undergo a process where there has been some degree of separation yeah. between the liquid and those fermentable parts of the mash, right? Yeah. So it, doesn't really matter how much it can be just a tiny tiny bit almost unnoticeable but there yeah. has to be some degree of separation that goes on so what that means then is that one no matter how cloudy it might look some form of separation has taken place yeah right it has gone through some sort of 
um, a process of that nature. And then the if other it thing has the word seishu on the bottle, right? That's the, the condition. Yes, if it does, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to sort of the, the caveat in there in a second. Yeah. Um, but then what that, what you end up with then is that um, because regulatory, you know, laws or depictions, because that's how they categorize it, there's no real record or tracking as to how much nigori style sake is actually produced or shipped because it all just falls under this category of seishu from, from an overall um, regulatory and tracking standpoint. So if you're looking for any yeah. information out there as to how much is actually produced or moved or shipped or sold, you pretty much have to go to the individual producer um, in order to find out. I mean, even if you were to go to a retailer um, because it's not categorically different um, from a legal, from a tax standpoint, um, they would actually have to go through their list and look at the actual number of bottles of things that were actually had a nigori or cloudy style element and pick those all out. It would require a lot of work. That's a nightmare. That's a right? nightmare to which go is, through every is, right? single. Yeah. Right. I mean, so what do you think? It's which is it's just it's kind of interesting in that it's such from a consumer standpoint, looking at it and the experience of it, it, it appears to be something so very different and unique yeah. in the experience. But um, because of the way it's um, defined on regulatory terms, um, it all exists in the same space, which makes it a little bit tough to to get um, real accurate yeah. information on. Um, and yeah. so it, most of the information you're going to get is going to be very unique to the individual producer or mm. possibly, you know, that distributor um, because, you mm. know, they might, a certain distributor because they might know what portion it makes up of their portfolio or something. I think probably the next question is, is it a traditional thing or is it a, 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 a recent trend? And you, the answer you, is kind of, I would say it's a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's a recent trend that's been inspired by essentially what, it essentially inspired by sake's roots itself, kind of trying to recreate what sake originally was in a sense. Yeah, um, to a degree. It depends on how far you want to take it back. Just yeah. the, the craft, the skill, the tools uh, that you would need in order to carry out any real sort of pressing or removal of, you know, uh, that separation of liquid and mash would require, right, a degree of resources that, you know, 1500 yeah. years ago were far from what we imagine today. And yeah. before there was regulations that prohibited people from being able to essentially homebrew, yeah. you know, a lot of people just made at home, you know, their own nigori style of sake, right. or it would be something closer to, and this will be kind of our caveat, uh, some people out there who are you know, kind of on top of this, this stuff, you might've heard the word doburoku, mm. doburoku. And essentially what that is, is this cloudy stuff that has not undergone any form of separation. So right. it's essentially the mash in its completed state. However, again, because that's a different tax category, there are legal restrictions as to the, de the degree to which that can be produced and um, turned into a yeah. consumer product. And there are limitations on that. And so because of that, you don't see it very often. Um, and visually, right. some dobudoku might appear just like a lot of, it might look like a lot of nigori, it might feel like a lot of nigori, 
it might have the experience similar to a lot of styles of nigori, but um, process-wise, there is that fundamental difference in that there has been no separation yeah. process that goes on. It, it's it's homebrew sake, and it, it goes back to it's something that farmers used to produce. I think kind of a, given a, to be given as an offering to the gods to kind of wish for a good harvest. In fact, there are lots of different uses of doppelroku, but it seems to be kind of the religious aspect seems to be quite a strong one. Um, it goes back a long, long way. I mean, you know, almost the, the full 2,000 years of sake's history. Um, so it is what originally sake was. There was no separation of solid and liquid at, at all um, in the original form of sake. You know, Dobunoku is in a completely different category from seishu. It's, it's actually called a dakushu, um, which literally means, you know, not the opposite, not, not clear uh, sake. And one reason why they call it Nigori Zake, and when they write it in Japanese, they don't use Chinese characters. Uh, there is actually a Chinese character for Nigori. They don't use it because it can be mixed up with this Dakushu category, which is what Doboroku falls under. I think one of the important elements in the definition of, um, or in the reasons behind Seishu, is the conservation of the product. Um, because if you filter the mash and you have something pretty liquid, it will not evolve very fast. Uh, one of the important elements in uh, nigori sake is that because you keep some solids, if you don't do, if you don't have a special process, you will keep the enzymes, you will keep the yeast uh, together in the bottle. So um, that product is likely to evolve and evolve fast unless you keep it at low temperatures. So or you pasteurize yeah, it. Yeah. St stability. Is always yeah. been a, is stability. A, an overarching goal is of yeah. you know the production of sake and, um, and a so, stable tax stream as well. Yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, make sure you the tax keeps coming from the because because when they first tried to introduce nigori sake in Japan, I think they had a lot of you know they they had to fight a little bit with the um, with the tax agency here because you know. Um, there was probably a lot of concern, you know, if we suddenly start releasing sake into the market, which doesn't have all the solids removed, probably from a stability, uh, you know, perspective more than anything, well, it's going to be chaos. There's going to be all sorts of sake out there. Yeah, and there is, a, and I guess that's a kind of a good segue to talking about how nigori as a style came to sort of hold its own stylistic place as a product um, in the market. Um, because as you said, we had doboroku um, or cloudy stuff forever and ever and ever. It's just been readily available for a long time. And then for a number of reasons, it was how do we, how do we get further away from that? So yeah. you end up with a market that has expectations for a clear beverage, especially, especially the things that right. they're spending money on right, that you're going out to purchase. And so then all of a sudden you reintroduce a cloudy um, interpretation of this beverage in a same category. And then you're asking for a similar amount of financial compensation, yeah. right, um, as a result. And so it's, it's a tricky pop proposition early on um, and it didn't yeah. exist, right? It was... Uh, Matsuda Tokubei Shoten. Matsuda Tokubei Shoten. So the, the motivation for reintroducing Nigori Zaki, as I understand it, was nostalgia more than anything. Um, well, that was one of the, that was the first kind of motivation. Now, there were a number of motivations, but I think nostalgia was certainly one of them. It was because the thing about Doboroku is that 
unless you had a special license, it's, it is illegal to produce doboroku uh, in Japan. So no one can actually produce it, you know, if they don't have this license. It's not easy to produce. And I think there's a lot of nostalgia for doboroku, um, maybe among brewers, but also among some consumers, not most consumers, but some consumers as well. I think it was this nostalgia they wanted to recreate in some form or other. They wanted to bring back doboroku in some form or other that kind of kicked this off. But then, of course, the other reason is that they wanted to produce something which was clearly recognizable, um, you know, because sake isn't clearly recognizable if you compare it with a lot of other alcoholic beverages out there. Um, it can certainly be compared to vodka and spirits and things like that, and often is mistaken even for those kind of things, right? So the thing about Nigori sake is that it's unmistakable, you know, when you see it. There's nothing out there outside Japan, or even in Japan, there's nothing out there that resembles nigori so um yeah sadly uh there's makori there's other stuff in in china that if you look across east asia there's a lot of similar interpretations but your second point there i'm a hundred percent on board with which is whether it's say different beer styles or wine styles yeah visually the second you look at it you can tell that you have something very distinctly different whether it's a red wine or a white wine or a stout or an amber or a, a you know or a pilsner or whatever you could yeah. there's this very clear let's let, let's stay cloudy this weekend visually yeah. and then your actual experience of, yeah. of drinking the beverage there's a very clear differentiation there if you attract the eye half of the job is done right I mean, exactly exactly and, that, and that's exactly. the challenge that that sake has and that's what exactly that's what i remember right. masada san saying that as well too is right there's it's it, exactly that element that you were saying, Chris, is that that visual element. And that's one thing that yeah. you're saying that sake does not have going for it in general, right. or at least it didn't at that time, right? Is you can line right. up a hundred kinds of sake and they all look, unless you get up next to them almost with a magnifying glass, if you're just standing back and looking at them all on the counter, they look pretty more or less identical yeah. for in a lot of cases, which yeah. is a special element to sake, but it also presents unique challenges as well, too, from a communication mm-hmm. standpoint. And that's that's why, uh, well, that's what the owner of uh, Kikusoi was, uh, was saying as well, is um, remember we are, we're talking about the 60s, early 70s, so a time when um, the big brands from, from, from Nada, from Kobe or, or Kyoto, actually, mm. were... Um, taking control of the market with a sort of a single style, or maybe I'm exaggerating there, but sort of a Kansai type of, uh, of, of sake. Yes. And um, making something different was the only way to, 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 um, to me attract local consumers, which had been under the influence of the, the, the marketing, the heavy marketing of the big brands as well. Yeah, how do you describe it? Creating your kind of your own arena to kind of battle in. Uh, That's right. Right. And so then, uh, you know, the process of bringing that to life was, I, you know, I can only imagine how incredibly challenging it was because basically they had to go through and, and create the laws <laughs> or restructure, you know, the laws associated with what, you know, that category could be. Breaking the rules. First, he has to break the rules, you know. I mean, whether he's doing it kind of like, you know, in a very light way or in a kind of a very kind of, you know, he's breaking the rules. The rules were that you have to separate the solids from the liquids. And essentially, he's kind of trying to get around that, you know, create a loophole to to excuse the pun. But, you know, that's a really bold move. 
very bold move. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, and you know. In an industry that doesn't do bold things traditionally, <laughs> right? It yeah. Just kind of follows one, one path the whole time, you know? Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, it happens at a time when uh, June Mai is trying to reappear as a category. Oh, that's it's right. exactly yeah. the same the same story. Is uh, how how you want to brew how you brew something different from what's in the market, yeah. um, and that is against what the the uh, regulations of the time were uh, were allowing. Um, so that involves uh, yeah, trying ban banning the rules and then discussing with the regulator and 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 finding a way or that yeah. satisfies everyone. It was it was a group, wasn't it? Actually, so Master Pukovic was kind of leading the group, but it was kind of like a group of brewers that had got together and said, "Look, you know, um, it was in the '70s when the peak was kind of the peak of sake popularity was kind of." You know, when they'd reached the peak and it, it looked like things were kind of going downhill a little bit. And, uh, you know, obviously they're worried for the future and, and kind of the, the future of sake and trying to create something to make sure that sake kind of survives with all this competition from all these other alcoholic beverages and just to kind of a wane in, in popularity in general. Yeah, I find it interesting. It was, I think it was 1964 when they originally brought That's right. Nigori That's to market, which is yeah. interesting. It's the same, the same year as the, uh, Summer Olympics, the big, you know, it was kind of a very iconic turning point here in Japan as well, too, at that time. And so it was like, as you said, Sebastian, I think it was kind of a point in time where it was maybe the first time that producers were in a position to start again thinking about the kind of sake that they wanted to make, you know. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was, it was a very interesting time. And so, um, indeed. So if we're talking about Nigori, then uh, we were sort of, mentioning that there is a lot of range within the market you know yeah. um masada sang you know he kind of he kicked it off but now it's a it's a staple um yeah. in the lineup of just about every producer i would say not every but just about every producer probably has at least one nigori product yeah, um, yeah. and then there could be um a range that could be you know they could be seasonal they could just be, you know, different expressions of of, a, of their standard line of nigori. Do you want to, Chris? Do you want to run through kind yeah. of because uh, there's a lot of vocabulary to kind of work through. Oh, there's Maybe a lot. we'll just kind of go down one by one and just kind of talk about yeah. right one yeah. of the how these things are different. Yeah, or or, or like not or idea. not so different in some cases. Maybe <laughs> right. Well, even in Japan, there's a lot of you know. Um, there's not really, really any clear definitions, um, you know. And when it comes to nigori, there are all kinds of different words that are used. Some of them, uh, people will argue, have the same meaning, are the same thing. Yep. So um, take this with a pinch of salt to an extent as well. Yep. But um, yeah, nigori is the one which nigori zake is uh, is the one which kind of I think we're all used to seeing. There can be different degrees of cloudiness, which means that. The, the mesh or the filter that they're using has different size holes to allow different amounts of solids through. Uh, of course, the brewery can actually return the solids at the end after filtering as well. So that's kind of not, not even relevant if you think about it. But um, I believe that Masta Tukave kind of set the standard of a three millimeter hole. Yeah, um, it's, yeah it's not a standard but I, now, but at the time, at Basically, the time, yeah. they had there was a lot of back and forth in saying, okay, yeah. what what is an acceptable level of separation 
Um, to the tax so agency, it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. that very first that very first time, yes, they did have to set a standard in order to do that. Now right. those standards are no. are out no. the window. There's nothing that says it has to. There has to be so much or so little. Um, yeah, so the, which is why you're going to see variations in all the the different styles we're going to run through here. Yeah, that's right. So well, we've got nigori, and then you've got uh, kind of a light nigori. Um, which just means, I mean, it could mean a number of different things, but at the end of the day, the end result is that you have a very, very small amount of sediment, not just a small amount of sediment, but you also have very small particles as well, as opposed to kind of bigger particles, which is, you know, got a lot to do with the size of those holes again, I think, uh, in most cases. You, you have this light nigori is called either usunigori or sasa nigori. I think sasa nigori is the lightest, um, and then you have usunigori. And then we have um, origami, which is, now this, I've met so many people who will swear to the end of the earth that this is nigori. It's the same thing as nigori, but it is uh, defined as being something different. And you have to look at the production process to really understand what origami is. But um, to keep this very simple, so as we've already explained, you separate the solids from the liquids, okay? Now, uh, we'll talk about this a bit later on, but uh, so there are different ways of referring to this, but essentially what you're doing is you're either pressing or you're filtering uh, the solids from the, the liquid. But after you filter the solids from the liquids or separate the solids from the liquids, what you do is you then return the sake to the tank. And then uh, you in, the sake is in the tank, okay? And then... You, although you've actually removed the solids from the liquids, there are actually some very, very, very fine leaves inside the sake that you can either remove or you can leave, okay? Normally what happens in the standard process is that you actually, uh, you either force these fine leaves to the bottom of the tank or you just let them naturally fall through gravity. Um, what you can actually do to kind of make the leaves, the fine leaves fall quicker is you can actually add like a processing agent. Uh, I think it's normally persimmon based. But this oribiki or sedimentation stage is a stage that is optional. So the brewers don't have to remove this fine leaves from the sake before they bottle it. Origarami is basically sake where the fine leaves were left in the bottle. So the literal meaning of origarami is there's just a little sprinkling of fine leaves uh, in the bottle. So ori the ori is literally sediment, and it's the, sediment, yeah. And the garami implies being wrapped up in, sort of. So That's right. Sort That's of right. It, within the liquid, it's sort of wrapped up in this hint yeah. of sediment. Um, we have so, this in the wine world as well, right? We have a similar concept in the wine world. So you have like uh, wine being bottled uh, on its leaves. Um, the the reason you do that is a little bit different. And the effect that you get is a little bit different, but essentially that's one way of looking at it as well. It's surly in, in the French, uh, to use the French word. Um, then we have um, we have Orizake and Moromizake. Moromizake is actually kind of a trademarked product of a particular brewery. Um, but Orizake is something that you might come across, which is essentially more of that sediment inside the bottle. I think it's very hard to see, argue I that would, really See, I would interpret it as less. I, my, see, and but again, that's a it's an individual difference, right? Well, I have an orizaki in my fridge, and it's really thick with with sediment. About thirty percent of the bottle is is sediment. Oh, um, so there you go. You see, it's very very loose definitions. Maybe that's that brewery's interpretation of it. Um, yeah. 
But, you know, I think it's hard to argue that Orizaki is basically not just Origarami, but with, a, you know, maybe a little bit or a little bit less or a little bit more yeah. uh, Ori in there. Um, the one which is kind of one that I think you will come across a lot is Kasei Nigori, um, which is, I think we translate as being a live sparkling Nigori. Sparkling um, Nigori. Would be. Yeah, <laughs> a live nigori, I think, is the, the literal kind of Japanese translation would be sparkling nigori. Um, but it's it's actually a nigori, which the thing about nigori zaki is because it's actually got lees and koji uh, enzymes inside it, if you don't pasteurize it, essentially what you have is a, a living product, something that could continue fermenting. You could continue getting the breakdown of starch to sugars, um, certainly if the temperatures are right. So what a live nigori is, is basically a nigori which hasn't been pasteurized. So you also have a nama zake as well. Um, you should be really, really cautious about when you're opening a nigori, because if, if, it, if it is a live nigori and you go ahead and you mix it, um, then you're going to be shaking up the gas inside and you're going to uh, probably lose half the contents when you open the, the bottle. Yeah, because, um, of the, and, because of the, of the uh, leaves, it just right. makes a beautiful geyser, actually. Yeah, because you have a little fermentation going on in the bottle, the bottom of the bottle. And the more leaves you have left in the bottle, the, the more violent or more aggressive a fermentation you're going to have. But anyway, uh, they're very hard to tell apart, Kasei Nigori and Nigori, especially if you can't read Japanese. Um, so my advice would just be, think maybe every Nigori could possibly be a, possibly uh, be a Kasei. That being said, just by observing the bottle, you may yeah. be able to uh, make the difference between the two uh, because of the... Uh, residual gas, uh, you yeah. might have a, how would you describe that, a ring of bubbles on the uh, yeah. on the top of the of the liquid that might be the sign of a carbonation. Also the, the cap that they use as well. They might use, a, like the cap that they use might suggest, uh, sometimes they use a cap with a hole in the middle. And what you're actually supposed to do when you open the bottle is you're actually supposed to poke a hole in first to let the gas escape. Um, but uh, yeah, that they can be hard to tell apart. Have I missed any? I think Kasei Nigori uh, is the last one I have on my list. Those yeah. are the ones that I think you're going to come across the most often. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the Kasei Nigori or the, the sparkling styles of Nigori being the ones you'll come across more often because it's because I'd say that's probably the case in Japan nowadays. Again, with yes. the numbers, it's hard to say, but I would say the opposite is probably true internationally. Oh, no, no. Right? oh yeah, because of yeah, yeah. Um, just because of for like, you essentially have a live, you have, you're, you're essentially so yeah you're essentially <laughs> shipping a whole bunch of small, yeah explosives bombs yeah. you know um, and right, they... temperature control and all those things and right. so a lot of just for the sake of stability you know a lot of yeah. places might ask for a pasteurized style of nigori or something yeah. you know um, that is a, yeah. a little bit more shelf stable. Um, yeah, and so it's, all, it's also interesting to point out that a lot of these kasei nigori were not intended to be kasei nigori. They, what happens is they end up being left on the shelf such a long time that they actually develop gas, but that was never the intention of the brewery necessarily. So obviously the brewery knows this could happen, but it's not like they released the product as a live nigori. It's just that it is by nature this volatile product, and if it doesn't get sold straight away, it ends up developing gas in the bottle while it's on the shelf. And I've had this a few times, especially right now. In, our, in the current circumstances where shops are not selling perhaps as much sake as they used to, um, and bottles get left on the shelf a little bit longer. But it's interesting, in the early days, I heard um, that the brewers had a big problem with 
when they were releasing Nagori with uh, exploding bottles and, and claims from um, and complaints from customers, you know, uh, that they had to deal with. Yeah, it's still it's still an issue. I mean, to be honest, yes, there's actually, still, yeah. there's still yeah. a lot of producers that are hesitant to um, to put a lot of that product out into the market if they don't have all the pieces in place to be able to right to to you know hopefully bottle something in a relatively stable manner and the logistics um, yeah and then and then get it out into the world that you know that way so a lot of the places that are say smaller that do you know certain batches or certain releases of um, these I guess more live nigori styles they'll do a, a limited run say to a certain distributor or a certain producer um, knowing that they can get that to them and then that distributor can get those out into the market within a small period of time so they can sort of they can determine not so much determine but they can more or less um envision the yeah. amount of time it's actually going to be out there living in the marketplace you know they can yeah. control it they can control its time and 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 in reach sort of in the marketplace so there's less risk involved um, yeah. and the, now what's funny is you um, you see the opposite now as well too is so because everybody's afraid of that you'll you'll probably yeah. notice um, a lot of these bottles have like giant red tags hanging over them it looks like it, it really does look like you know warning explosives kind of a deal yeah. it's just macked all over the place um, on the label and it has a special tag over the top and then another thing wrapped around the thing <laughs> like there's just yeah. so many ways and what in a, in a lot of cases they're almost overcompensating and so what you end up also with is the opposite, whereas people go, they're hoping for a sparkling experience, a live experience. They go open this thing up and it's completely flat. And it's then like they end up firework. Exactly. And then they exactly. And then they end up actually yeah. taking the product back and be like, I got this, this, yeah. this, this is this is a dud for the exact opposite I've, reason. Yeah. So you, you I've can't win. <laughs> I've I've been there. I've taken a Nigo exactly, you know, it's supposed to be. I'm expecting to be very, very volatile to a party and I'm I'm there about to open it, expecting this massive extravaganza, <laughs> this big show. And it is like foot. <laughs> That's yeah. it, you know? oh. <laughs> um what's really hard about Nigori sometimes is um for a, a particular aspect of the product, it's it's the the, the, the least density or, or the presence mm. of gas or not. Uh, it's really hard to guess uh, the taste of the product. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah. I think even more than with a clear sake or so seishu, um, you have a wide range of uh, of, of yeah. taste and flavors in in nigori, from really really sweet to yeah. really really dry. Yeah, and, and you've got to know your products there. Overseas, I think Nigori Zaki is generally thought to be a sweet product because a lot of breweries that ship their Nigori Zaki's overseas tend to make them quite sweet. Could be wrong about that, but it was certainly my experience. Like the first Nigori Zaki that I ever had, Takara's, was quite sweet. Um, so I thought Nigori Zaki was a, you know, was actually a sweet thing. I always expected it to be sweet. And I, I can't remember which brewery told me this, but I remember a brewery telling me, no, no, no. Nigori Zaki is actually dry. It comes out dry. If you want to make it sweet, you have to make it sweet in some form or other by, by blending it with something else. Or, Amazake, for um, example. Yeah, but make, yeah, for example, by blending it with Amazake. No, it's not. It's not sweet. So most Nigori Zaki, I would say, in Japan is pretty much on the dry side. There are quite a lot of exceptions. Uh, and you were saying like the diversity of the flavors that you get. I think what, the greatest example um, I've ever tasted of the diversity that you can get with uh, Nigori Zaki is Matsuda Tokabe's own Junmai Daiginjo. Mm -hmm. 
it's a Jungmai Daikinjo, but it's also a Nigori. And I mean, personally for me, I'm, you know, I might be a bit biased. That's actually my favorite Nigori at the really? moment. Mm, yeah, no, yeah. it's a great product. It's, a great it's product. so complex. Mm. You, get the, you get the Ginjo aroma and flavor. You get the flavors of the Ginjo, but you also get the flavors of Nigori as well. And it balances the two beautifully. For me, that was important because my image of Nigorizaki was, like I said at the beginning, something which is quite rough and hard to drink and not elegant and, and quite cheap and quite sort of, you know, as a product, kind of cheap in a, in a way. Yeah, well, I think it was probably, I don't want to say that the products that were prevalent in certain international markets were cheap products, but I think no, just, no. What was, just what was available was, I think you had a, a, basically a small handful of producers that basically had one nigori in their lineup that kind of just yeah. kind of permeated the market so it kind of came to define people's you know expectation based on what they put out there um yeah but finally now you're starting to get i guess you know I, another one that probably really helped sort of change the perception of that is something like like dasai you know by them putting you know that degree of cloudiness with that sort of profile um and that sort of palette you know that sort of you know, I think flip the tables for a lot of people in their perception yeah. of, of, of what that Absolutely. could be. And that's, again, I agree that's just, yeah. you know, that's just one interpretation, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. probably closer to what a lot of the interpretations that you're, that you're seeing here uh, in Japan as well too. And what a lot of people tend to be looking for is something um, a little bit closer to that than maybe this, this really thick, rich, heavy, um, sweet deal. That yeah. A lot of people's yeah. initial experiences um, with it. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many, I said, it's, there's so many different, you know, iconic products and, and mm. labels. Um, and it's interesting because they're just, they're going to be different depending on, you know, the market that you're in as well too. Um, mm. So it's really hard to kind of pin down certain ones, but it's been really exciting to see Nigori. I don't want to say maybe not necessarily make a comeback in Japan, but because of mm. sort of the diversification in just in style in general, the idea of adding that element back in um, mm. has become kind of another tool um, in the toolkit. And one thing I, I really wanted to emphasize, um, and when I visited Masada-san at uh, uh, the other day and we were talking, making a nigori is really, really hard it's actually really really hard it's much easier especially with the pressing capacity and machinery that's available out there now it's much easier to press something clear than mm. to press something to a certain degree or to press it and have to figure out what you're going to reintroduce back into it right you know in order to create an experience that is pleasurable and favorable because you're adding texture in a way that you can't get you know in just a regular uh, i don't want to say regular but in a more i guess because a standard style of sake it's yeah. really really hard to make a good nigori and it takes a lot of work usually the methods that people that different producers um use in order to create their nigori style of sake a lot of times it's really backbreaking work, like really backbreaking work. Yeah. And I think, 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I see two two things here, or two dimensions. I mean, one is the backbreaking work of uh, bottling it um, <laughs> and, that and, and separating um, the right amount of uh, of, of lease from the from 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 the Moromi. That's one. Yeah. But uh, I just wanted, sorry, if I interrupted you, uh, no, Justin, go. but I wanted maybe to um, explain why it can be uh, more complex or more, or more stressful is that the, the master brewer, the toji, can't make a mistake. Like he is not allowed to make a mistake because what's gonna go into the bottle is straight, is, is straight what's in the moromi. Uh, whereas with um, filtered or and with filtered sake, uh, you have a lot of steps post uh, pressing, actually with pressed moromi, I should say. You have a lot of steps post pressing where uh, you can adjust the taste of the product that you're that you're currently making. Um, mm. You can filter it or not. You can pasteurize it or not, and you can, mm. of course, blend it or not, which which makes a, a big difference there. And, they said, and even with with nigori styles, you still have some of those options available to you. you know, with yeah, you do. You do. And those things, those those options don't necessarily disappear. But it's just like there's no right one right way to make a good batch of sake. There's no one right way to make a good nigori, and everyone's right. interpretation of what a good nigori is is very, very different. And so, figuring out what that is, and then figuring out the tools needed and the process needed in order to do it, is really, really hard. And it usually ends up with using a lot more equipment, creating a lot of specialized equipment, um, carrying out um, irregular um, tasks that wouldn't you wouldn't have to deal with in the production of you know, uh, a clear style of sake. And at the end of the day, up until relatively recently, um, a lot of nigori has ended up just in general, it's been in sort of the lower tier of price brackets of what's in a lot of brewers portfolios, which is a shame because it's, it's not easy to create um, and to produce a really, really good nigori. And now, now that you're starting to see primarily a lot of seasonal products, seasonal releases that are integrating some cloudy element into the, into, into the style. They're, they're able to add, I guess you could say add value. It's not just an igori sake, it's, it's also sparkling or it's also unpasteurized or it's also a limited release or it's also, it's all these other things. So when, when they were sort of struggling to add value to just a nigori before, now they can introduce this sort of this cloudy element in combination with these other things that the consumer yeah, perceives, perceives to be special or limited or premium in other in other qualities or elements of the uh, other product. Yeah. So um, just out of curiosity, um, Sebastian, you were saying you tend to drink, you know, not so much of the really thick stuff. When you are drinking it, how are you drinking it? What are you What are you drinking it with? What are you drinking it? What What's what 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 does your nigori experience look like? Mm, I I was wondering. I mean, reflecting on what you were saying about why. I mean, often in in Tokyo, in particular, you don't find that many nigoris on sake list, and you have so 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 many different seishu so clear sake uh, styles available and i guess that influenced my the way i buy sake as well is maybe because at my usual retailers 
I already have such a such a great range of uh, of clear or usunigori um, or origami, which is not a nigori after Chris's explanation. Um, such a, a large selection of um, of uh, of clear sake already. I, I maybe my eye is less attracted by uh, by the nigori style. Um, so so. Just let me rephrase. So in Tokyo, it's, it's true that it's not that easy to find that much uh, nigori on, on, on offer in shops and in izakayas. And I don't know if it's, if it's true or not, but I tend to associate nigori with my visits to, to the countryside. Um, mm. And especially to uh, mountainous regions in, in Japan, maybe it's my personal ex experience, but I tend to associate Nigori with uh, experiences in, in the mountains with kind of coarser uh, food and uh, coarser taste. And, and that's the uh, image that I um, have, have built for myself, which is, which is probably not right, because as we were saying earlier, there is such a diversity of, of styles mm. that it's um, you can most definitely find the nigori to pair with uh, or a nigori to pair with uh, all sorts of food. But yeah, I mean, I don't see nigori and 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 Kyoto food um, and white miso uh, matching well together. But again, I, I'd love to be proved wrong. Oh, I think they do. Yeah, I think they work quite well together. I think I've, I've had that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's going to depend on the nigori too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, very true. I guess, yeah, I guess for me, the biggest thing is, I don't want to say the biggest thing, but because there is so much variation, I, I enjoy a lot of those really thick nigoris as well. More yeah. than anything, it's just a matter of, do I feel like I can stomach that right now? Not mm. because it's not appealing, but it's, there's just a lot more weight to it. And so depending on how full I am or how, or what I'm having for dinner, it's it's less of a, it's less of a flavor experience as it is just how much do I feel like I can take on at the moment? You know, how much, how much weight can I endure kind of a, kind of a deal. Um, but it's, so I end up leaning toward things that are somewhat lighter in their cloudiness or something that's a lot more dry. The nice thing is there's a lot more really like super dry style of nigori nowadays. Um, also like really fully fermented kimoto styles of nigori and things that um, that are great for um, heating or you can serve them on the rocks or <laughs> different things. And so there's a lot of stuff that even if you don't feel like you have the stomach for, you know, a glass of something thick and chunky, you can still enjoy the nigori experience. You know, you can still get that that texture and that mouthfeel and some of those flavor bonuses that come along with, you know, having that that substance in there um, without all the weight. And now that there's sort of more options for that, I, I, I think I tend to gravitate a little bit more in that direction. But um, mm. at least for me, I tend to, I tend to just have usually an array of nigori at home because even if I don't, it, it's something that, if I'm sipping on three or four things in an evening, it's something I will integrate one of into the, you know, into the lineup. Or if I go out and it's, you know, a range of, if I taste seven or eight sake or something like that, it, it, it will, if they're on offer, I'll usually try and put two or three into the, um, into the experience just because 
they're they're so much fun and they're gen mm. i generally find them so incredibly tasty <laughs> they are i think for me it's uh that it represents kind of two things now for me it's kind of like a it has a celebrational element and it has a seasonal element to it uh more than anything that's what i kind of associate Vigori with nowadays yeah and, celebration um, for sure especially around new year yeah. things like that new year's you see a yeah. lot of limited like nigori releases sparkling and otherwise right. you know it, there is and, and then you can drink it like differently right so you can you can kind of make cocktails with it and sort of you you, you know you can put it in a champagne flute and, um I, I mean i generally don't like putting nigori in wine glasses because it leaves that horrible kind of stain on the outside afterwards but they look yes, great they to begin with though Yes, I do. It does look cool to begin with, though. Before, for the before first... you move it, as long as you don't exactly. it, it, looks, it looks amazing. Yeah, exactly. I have to say, I think I probably gravitate more towards the proper Nigori now, which is strange because it used to be the opposite. It used to be that I kind of didn't like those because they the chalky element and the kind of very strong acidity that you get and often bitterness that you get as well. But I just haven't discovered the right Nigori Zaki. And I actually tend to gravitate away from the Usunigori style. So I'm a little bit, op I'm the opposite to Sebastian. I, I find that the Usunigori style, they kind of, it's kind of like being in between the two. And if they're going to do Nigori, I kind of would prefer them to do it properly. And if it's kind of an Usunigori, it just kind of feels like that remaining kind of sediment doesn't do anything really to the, to, it wouldn't be much better off as a clear, obviously with a lot of exceptions. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to generalize because there are so many different styles out there. You know, that generally tends to be my, my preference, but you're um, saying there's a proper nigori and an improper nigori? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, no, I don't want to use the word. I don't want to use the word proper and improper. No, I know, I know. But no, you're right. I don't want to use the word proper and improper. I'm just but, messing with you. But you know, like I don't know. Yeah, we see nigori. You know, because it it almost comes a bit of a, a a surprise, but at the same time, a kind of a disappointment as well. You know, when you find out the thing you've just ordered is actually an usunigori, because often you don't know, right? When you order it, you just order the sake, and then it turns it. Oh. Oh, this isn't Usunigori. <laughs> or, or even what you were mentioning before, when you're talking about different names and the different vocabulary. Or an origami, yeah. You, yeah, might, you yeah. might order a nigori and it be might be something very, very thin. Or you might order an Usunigori and yeah. it feels like it's got way more punch than, yeah. or way more, a lot more weight to it than you were anticipating. Right? There's no. That's an interesting point. I wonder what you'd actually get in most bars if you just went around Tokyo randomly and just ordered an igori in all the different bars. I mean, what they'd actually serve. I think they'd probably all serve something very different, actually. We should um, probably go find out. We should probably. That would be a great. We should probably conduct the field test and do yeah. a follow up to this session. <laughs> Six months. That's a really good idea. Yeah. To close it out here, then one thing I guess it's worth touching upon is nigori because you still have those solids in there. You also yeah. are leaving some of those flavor components and things in in a way that add substance and texture that you don't get in other styles. Which so then yeah. when it comes to choosing the food that you're going to put on the table, you get a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting possibilities open up. And just like yeah. we said, there's not uh, a one nigori fits all and it's not that they're all exactly the same but you tend no. to see a lot of places pairing a wider range of styles of nigori um, with cuisine with qualities that you don't typically associate with japanese cuisine so I've, there's places doing nigori and tacos there's places doing nigori and thai and indian curries um chinese food you know a lot of different types of cheeses different types like there's just a yeah. lot of really really lovely combinations that you can get with food and different styles of nigori 
And then another thing that makes them kind of fun that you touched on earlier when you were talking about cocktails and things is that uh, it seems that a lot of producers are more than open to people using their nigori in other ways, you know, combining yeah. that with other with other things to create, you know, different types of drinking experiences, um, whether it's adding an essence of this citrus or that, or it's, yeah. you know, adding, you know, Fresh milk. I, 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 I mean, yeah, Kikusoi was suggesting adding yeah. fresh milk to uh, to an igori and, and making it uh, sort of yeah. an unusual cocktail. That's an interesting one. I can see someone putting, trying to put coffee beans in there. It's going to happen sooner or later. And yeah. uh, pineapples as well. And putting pineapples in a in an igori and making like a kind of a pina colada is another interesting yeah. one I've seen. Cutting Co coffee. Coffee ice to make a latte. Yeah, exactly. Cafe au lait. Here's a question for you guys. I would be interested to hear your, your answers. Have you ever warmed your nigori up? What do you think of warming it up? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All the time. I probably drink it warm more than not, actually. Mm. actually yeah. Hands there's a lot of umami elements in there, isn't there? It makes a lot of sense when you think about it, warming oh, it up. There's, but it, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. But it is, there are, you know, I think for a long time, as, I remember, you know, when I was working in London, we would often say, don't warm Nigori up, you know, because I think there was maybe a fear of how it would change. Uh, I don't think a lot of experimentation had been done, really. Um, but there are some styles of Nigori that don't work warm as well. So perhaps, you know, well, I think we're, I think more than anything now. Yeah, I think now that there's just more information available, there's more people looking for yeah. information. People are just more comfortable with presenting more possibilities to people whereas yeah. in the past with a limited number of products and a finite amount of actual space where people could experience those things they were focusing on simplifying the message more and more right which is still yeah. really important there's a lot of people doing really important work in that in that realm right how can you they also said you know don't warm your namazake or don't yeah. warm your ginjo style sake or don't warm you know there were a lot of hard and fast rules that were introduced whereas now you're starting to see enough product differentiation as well as just people being just becoming more comfortable with experimenting um, and learning about yeah. wanting to understand um, not just sake but the foods and beverages that they're that they're enjoying um, and so people I think they're just more comfortable as well with just presenting possibilities as opposed to giving answers agreed all right last one to close it out nigori sake is it unfiltered <laughs> or is it semi-pressed is it what's the what's the what's the vernacular well i used to refer to it as being unfiltered and on the other hand, I used to refer to the uh, process of removing the, separating the solids from the liquids as pressing. That is the way that, you know, I learned. Uh, but then I started teaching WSET and WSET defines the, the, the process of separating the solids from the liquids is referred to as uh, filtration. And now you may be thinking, well, hang on, doesn't that become confusing because you also have filtration as in charcoal? filtration right they refer to the charcoal filtration as fining, it's fining right? to remove any confusion yeah. you know when i'm teaching wst obviously i'm teaching it as filtration i'm still really on the fence about what is correct and i've had a lot of debates with various people about about this and i've kind of come to the conclusion that it might be possible to use both and that both might be correct in a sense 
in one of the traditional ways of uh, removing the solids from the liquids using the Fune device, it's very hard to argue that that isn't pressing. The way that, you know, you push down on no the bags. No matter how you look at it, it just looks like yeah, a, a press. Right. And, and where's the filter there? Where's the filter? Well, it's in right. the bags, isn't it, essentially? It, but it's where... the bag itself. It's the bag yeah. itself being a, a serving right. as a mesh, right? So right. It's, so it's, yeah, it is, it is, I, I would say filtering is very much an accurate term because that is what you're doing, right? You're passing yeah. something through something um, yeah. in order to separate you know, liquid and solid. So it is. And, and that's, that's what it is in, ja that's what it is in Japanese as well. Uh, the yeah. Japanese word literally means kind of filtrate, filtration as opposed to, although they do have another word, which kind of uh, incorporates the element of pressing into it as well. So you have joso and you have uh, kosu as well. They're a little bit, little, I never heard it referred to, but I don't think you'd refer to it as rocker. That is clearly the charcoal. Uh, is clearly yeah, the, what you were yeah. referring to as the fining. And yeah, so it's kosu and it's uh, basically joso or shiboru. Yeah. Um, shiboru is almost like squeeze, isn't it? Really, yes. it's kind of. It is. What I mean, do you think, Sebastian? It's the same you would use for like an orange juice. It's the same word that you. Would you know, use for that. in in a recent video series I was recording, which will probably have gone live by the time this this airs. Um, the girl I was with, I never thought about it like that, but the girl I was with said, "Oh, it's very similar to kind of." Uh, to squeezing orange juice, the pulp uh, of orange juice through a through a sieve. Through a sieve. So, oh yeah, actually now you come to mention it is actually it's a very very easy way to understand it, isn't it? Really, the uh, but again, but then it's also it's, it's a little different, right? Because it's not in yeah. a way that might be a little bit more similar to the Greek example where you're taking something that has yeah. inside of a you know. So it's yeah. So I, I I think I think you're right. I think they're both accurate terms. It's. Yeah. Who are you talking to in the context that you're using it, right? How much, how much space do you have to to clarify? And honestly, maybe in most, you don't, you know, just telling someone that there is, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a filtration process going on. You know, it might yeah. be a, it might be a super fine filter. It might be a super coarse filter. It's probably a, it's that's an interesting point actually. That's an interesting point for the more kind of the more kind of um, you know. Uh, people listening to our show who are kind of, you know, already deeply into the sake world and have quite a lot of knowledge, this might be of interest. So there is actually two stages of uh, filtration in sake production. We really only ever talk about the first one, but there is normally also a second one, which as Justin just uh, said, it's a super fine filtration, um, normally comes after the main filtration. They, they rarely get all the solids out in the first filtration. So they have to then um, do a fine filtration with an even kind of with a filter which has got even kind of um smaller holes to uh pick up you know make sure those smaller kind of finer sediment ends up being removed from the liquid all right gentlemen i'm getting thirsty now so <laughs> i yeah. almost finished my bottle nice work but you only had a small bottle right <laughs> that's right your, your, your approach to this session was correct, Sebastian. Yeah, I <laughs> thank agree. You. I agree. Thank you. Correct. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for making time tonight. That has been one more episode of Sake on Air. If you have any questions, thoughts, feelings about tonight's episode, this week's episode, or any other past episode, you can get in touch with us at questions at sakeonair.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. YouTube, we got lots of good stuff up there on YouTube now, thanks to the Sake Future Summit 2020 last year. And 
we will there will be more coming up again real fast and we'll be back with more sake on air again here very soon uh, sake on air is brought to you with the support of the japan sake and tochu makers association and broadcast from the japan sake and tochu information center in tokyo the show is a co-production between export japan and potsuke productions and is edited beautifully with the help of mr frank walter gentlemen thank you so much i'm going to go find some nigori thank you justine yeah, let's let, let's stay cloudy this weekend <laughs> <laughs> cheers i will report back soon